0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammha sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammha sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammha sambuddhasa. Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed,
1: Noble and fully Self-Enlightened One. So, <clears throat> I wanted to uh, just continue uh, for another session the uh, hindrances, just to go into them perhaps a little bit more detail. And uh, this evening I wanted to investigate deliciousness. And the uh, two areas, the three areas that I um, look at particularly is the erotic, the romantic, and love. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I, I call it the erotic, not lust. Lust is our relationship to the erotic. The erotic and the romantic are just part and parcel of the loveliness of our lives, occasionally. Occasionally. And uh, <clears throat> the erotic, just to think about that for a minute. So that's really to do with some sort of physical attraction towards another person. And uh, it only happens between certain people. It doesn't, you don't feel normally erotic to everybody you meet. It would be exhausting. <laughs> so there's that case of something very particular And, um, as you know, it's said that, uh, generally speaking, if you abstract, if you separate out the erotic from the romantic from love, then it becomes uh, a bit like eating. And in itself, it's a sort of empty experience. It loses meaning when you just do it by itself. Whenever I say this, I'm always reminded of uh, Woody Allen's Little Crack, where he said, just sex is an empty experience, but as empty experiences go. <laughs> so, <clears throat> as usual, when you look at anything which is delightful, it's either because we like it, quite obviously, we, we like to indulge in it, it brings, as it were, immediate sense of happiness. See, that's the point, it brings happiness. Isn't it? Uh, the whole point about the erotic, the romantic, and love in uh, in the general sense, not not the true meta i mean love as attachment, is that it brings uh, joy brings joy to the highest it 's a lovely uh, it 's a lovely experience um, but the other side it is the other side of it is as usual that we may also be using it to escape something that 's the point, so that we are seeking. Uh, entertainment to escape something that we don't like. So, things like uh, such a, should we say, a, a very obvious and loud sensual experience, such as sex, is something that you can get lost in and forget the worries of your life. Huh? So, there's always this duality with anything that we enjoy, in terms of the self, in terms of uh, how we relate to it. Part of it is... Just sheer indulgence, we we'll like it, and it creates a it creates a lovely feeling in that in the heart. And the other side is that we may be running away from something. Hmm? So once we have that uh, clear in mind, with anything that we indulge in, hmm. those two parts, then as it were, as you watch that indulgence, you see as it fades away. Don't be surprised that underneath it there lies maybe grief, anxiety, anything that you're pushing away. Hmm? So that these pleasant things can be used to suppress just as anything else. So we talked about sleep as a, as a lovely way to suppress things. So here anything which is enjoyable can be used just to push it away, just gently push it away, to ignore it, for it not to be there. Hmm? And uh, because the sexual energy is so related to life, to the life force, um, uh, you know any anytime that death appears or anything like that there 's a, a great desire to to run that way, you see, and to reinforce the fact that there is life
0: hmm? um,
1: interestingly enough, I picked up a, uh, a quote from William Blake, "The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom, mm-hmm. you see so remember that in the Buddha's life, we saw how all that uh, loveliness that he was experiencing, with his um, dancing girls and all that sort of stuff, and presumably his drinking and um, and the good time, having a good time, that in the end it's like squeezing blood from a stone, like it loses its um, its buzz, basically, <laughs> and there comes that weariness with it. Hmm? And remember, we uh, and I'll, I'll mention it again towards the end. There is a distinction to be made between weariness and boredom. Hmm? Weariness is that uh, coming to the end of seeking happiness in that place. Boredom is just that you're fed up with it for a while. You need a break. You need a fast. You need a diet, and then you can get back to it again, refreshed. (laughs) So boredom is just a, uh, as we say, um, coming from overindulgence, and then but then you still want to get back to it once the hunger for it rises. So, in our meditation, of course, it can be, uh, if you don't watch it, uh, these thoughts around lust can be really obsessive. And uh, we have to be extraordinarily patient for that, with that and just keep coming off them and back into the body and just feel the excitement, feel what's actually happening there. And that business of really acknowledging what's going on, you see, sometimes you might think, well, we're too old for this, we shouldn't be thinking these things. <laughs> But you're never too honestly. I think, what was it, now? I think it was Pope John Twenty-Third. I just remember a quote from him where he said, the loveliness of being, I think he was 85 or something, was that the flesh had, had finally quietened. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can expect to, to, be, to be harassed by this sort of thing till who knows when. So <clears throat> it's a case of being very quick with that because remember that uh, when a thought arises and carries, its, carries on, there's, there's some force behind it which the Buddha called Chaitana. Hmm? And that force, remember, is not the intention. Force is just a force. It's just an energy form. It's the same as when you throw a stone up into the air. As far as I know, they still don't quite know what it is that makes the stone keep going but we call it force. So there is something which uh, takes that which is a, a thought in the head, just an idea, a wish, a desire, an intention. See, that's why we're also being very careful to note intentions, and it suddenly flips, and you're away. It's gone. You're either doing something, or you're thinking something, or you're saying something. And remember, at that point, it's become an action. That's a karma. And therefore, you are reinforcing your conditioning. So here, if we're not very quick with these delicious thoughts, then they they just run away, and you've had it. And then it takes a time, you see, then it takes time because you've re-empowered that. Um, A good uh, metaphor for that are people who suffer from uh, drink problems, uh, alcoholics. They can be off for so long, and then then maybe just at a a weakness or as um, a... a little bit of hubris, a little bit of pride, thinking they're now above it, and it's just that one drink, and off they go, because it's re-empowering an old um, habit. Of course, in that case, there's there's a physical element, but it's the same with smoking, even though there's a physical element too that people can be off smoking for a long time, and then just when they feel a bit down or when they're in the wrong company, they just take that one cigarette, and then they're surprised how difficult it is, how suddenly that whole engine is restarted. So, if, uh, if, you, if you see these thoughts coming up, you know, to be very quick with them, you know, and come back and, and just think about what that thought is doing and, and bring yourself back to the body. Now, there is an exercise that you can do which is uh, uh, which we did partly on, for those of you who are here for my uh, New Age Healing session. And uh, there you, you actually take the image that you've got towards which, uh, which you find erotic, you see. So it's not lust yet. Is it? It's only lust when you indulge it. Huh? So as soon as you see an image which is erotic to actually begin to uh, take the skin off. Look at the parts. Just see that, in fact, uh, you know, we say beauty is only skin deep. And when you do that then uh, if you do it uh, to parts which naturally raise a sense of uh, disgust, yeah? you don't have to make yourself vomit, you understand? It's just <laughs> when, when you just raise that little bit of disgust, and, and there's, then you'll see the mind balances itself. And what we're trying to do with that exercise is to get the mind to be conditioned so that as soon as a lustful thought comes up, it, the mind itself will change it for you. you can can make that a habit in the mind to do that See, and uh, and by doing that you're you're undermining that process of spinning off onto these thoughts Uh, if you end up being disgusted all the time then then, uh, then you have to stop it (laughs) because that's not the point the point isn't to end up with disgust for the human body it's just a little trick that we can play to make the mind flip you see and uh, I mean I've practiced this myself and it definitely works I can, I can assure you that and uh, uh, you have to be slightly careful with it too because you can be slightly un- unwittingly you can be suppressing see that's another point that we have to be careful of all we're thinking about is thoughts and then and then we have to get down to the root feeling which is that desire to be at that place which gives us so much pleasure mm. So you have to be quite careful with the old suppression, which we know from Freud uh, becomes twisted and, and ends up in all sorts of peculiar behaviour. So uh, the thing is that uh, what we want to do with sexual energy, or what we want to do in terms of the spiritual life, is to withdraw the unnecessary energy that we that we that we ought to have around around this, around sex. And uh, there's a there's a word that uh, I don't know. You never hear it these days. It, it, it sort of got a bad it's got a bad name because I think it was confused with suppression. And that word is sublimation. To sublimate in science, I looked it up. Yeah? I don't know anything about science. In science, <laughs> it means when a solid evaporates immediately into into air, into into a, a gas. Hmm? there's a special word sublimate and to sublimate means in terms of your energy is to divert uh, unskillful impulses or unskillful desires into something which is skillful you see so if you if we have an image of uh, the way the mind works as just an energy system which coagulates uh, forms a forms a tightness around a particular idea and spins around it like a like a like a whirlwind, you see, and that's all we're talking about. We just talk about energy. And if I can if I can draw that energy away, as it were, to something which, uh, shall we say, um, is 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 more useful, or even expresses that in a sublimated form, then what I get is, um, you know, poetry, art, music. Uh, I, I, can, I don't have to go that way. I can, I can draw that energy away and put it into some loving energy, some compassionate energy, you see. Now, you know, you just have to be slightly careful with that because you've also got to acknowledge that whirlwind. So if you don't acknowledge the whirlwind, then you, you think you might be, uh, you know, putting your thoughts in better places, but you're not acknowledging this, this, um, this turbulence, so that turbulence remains. So you have to acknowledge the turbulence, feel the turbulence, and then cajole yourself to draw the energy into something which is more skillful. See? And there's that, there's that transformation going on. Now this, uh, this of course, is um, became uh, the root understanding of Tantra. I mean, that's all that Tantra is. It's just the transformation of that energy. And... Um, uh, It's, it's, it's just that understanding that all, all you're playing around with is, is some sort of energy force and that therefore through certain imagery and even through certain actions you can sublimate it, you can draw it out and take away that habit. And what we want to do is, it, you know, is get rid of that obsessiveness around these things. So um, I'm sure you all know that you know, if, if lust gets hold of us in a, in a meditation retreat... It, it's, uh, it's got a tight hold, so you have to be, you have to be very sharp on that. And, um, and remember that it can be an escape from something, a usual escape from anxiety, from loneliness, from all sorts of things. And uh, romance, um, that delicious feeling that we get when we fall in love with somebody.
0: Yeah?
1: And the, the dreams and the books written, my goodness... And the films, on, I mean, it's just never ending. And it's always the same plot, which is really annoying. It's always... <laughs> but somehow, we still wring juice out of It doesn't matter how many romantic films people see, they love them. So it's that sheer deliciousness, isn't it, of being in love with somebody, you know? And uh, again... In, I'm talking now about being in a meditation retreat. When the mind is wandering that day and it's fantasizing about, you know, some enchanted evening. <laughs> <laughs> and you're out there on, oh my good, you know, with old Frank Sinatra in the background. And you've got, and you have to uh, see that immediately and go into it, you see. Now there'll be that deliciousness there because of the memory of the wanting to be at that place uh, in that special way with another person. I mean, it's, it is... Pure deliciousness. I can't. I can't think of anything more delicious myself, uh, apart from uh, maybe the jhanas. <laughs> and that's why you've to. You have to be slightly careful. So um, uh, remember that again. There's always these two things. It's delicious. We like to indulge it, but it's also an escape. It's also. It may be an escape. It doesn't have to be an escape. It just may be an escape. So when we're sitting here and we're beginning to be assailed by these romantic feelings, romantic dreams and you come back and you allow that feeling, remember? Remember that feeling, emotions, all these things are all seeking metaphor. Right? They're all seeking metaphor. They're all seeking a way in which to express themselves. But so when you uh, just just note you know, romance, romance and all that stuff, sort of falling in love, yeah? and you note that and you turn away into the body and you feel the delicious feelings, you see, As they begin to dissipate, don't be surprised if underneath it what you come across is a deep loneliness because that's what we're running from. So it's a case of remembering that, you see, so that when the loneliness comes up, then there should be this little, aha, that's why I'm so obsessive about um, these romantic films and stuff. It's because of this loneliness. And, of course, you have to go into the loneliness. You You have to let the loneliness express itself. You know, you are unlovable, nobody loves you, you're alone in this world, kill yourself. So you have to, <laughs> and you have to stay within those awful feelings, don't get, don't get caught up in those words. And then again, don't be surprised that as you sink into that loneliness, allow it, allow it to express itself and let it dissipate. Suddenly, you're just sitting there in this really lovely state of solitude. You see, just being at one with oneself. It's the sense of lack, isn't it? Uh, There's a writer called David Loy. He's a bit... uh, He can be a bit heavy because he's a very good uh, philosopher. Uh, He's he's American. Yeah, American. Uh, Works in Japan. And if you haven't come across his books, do uh, look him up, David Loy. And he he likes this word lack for dukkha. Not suffering, not unsatisfactionness, but lack. There's a lack there, you see. And when you think about it, that's just another way of saying desire. A wanting for something. And remember that the self is an empty thing. Not empty in, in the old Mahayana, the great emptiness. Emptiness ends up there's nothing there and it's got to fill itself with something. Yeah? Sex, drugs and rock and roll. So um, again, it's a case of being very clear about uh, what's happening there. You know, And to stop the mind. When I say stop the mind, you have to be careful not to bat these things away. You're not trying to destroy the mind, not to kill it. You just note it. Now, as soon as you note what's going on, that which has been going on, the thought, the romance, it has to stop because you can't think two two thoughts at the same time. It's as simple as that. So, if you keep saying romance, romance, you see, as soon as you've said that, the romance is gone, right? So, what that means is that we've stopped with that noting, the acknowledgement. We've stopped the escape. Of this emotional energy from slipping up into these higher faculties to create this imaginary world, a virtual reality—that's what it is, eh? Yeah. And if you get lost in that, then of course you, you tend to throw it out onto the world. So by coming off those very patiently, very you know, just know that you come back into the heart and you just feel, feel what's going on there. Yeah. And don't be surprised if suddenly, as it dissipates, some uh, rather nasty feeling turns up. And of course as those nasty feelings disappear then there's nothing impelling this search for escape happiness in romance and all these things and therefore the obsessiveness begins to go And remember that as I as I keep saying that Every, all the energy we have, nothing is lost in this process. It is actually being slowly transformed, and all these things are transformed into love, compassion, joy, or peace. Yeah, that's what we're that's what we're doing. Now, you know, whenever I talk about this, especially as a monk, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you know, he's just he's just a monk. He not he doesn't." <laughs> He's against he 's against the erotic and the romantic he 's taken a vow of celibacy so he's <laughs> but he 's bitter but it 's not true and uh, if you think about the ordinary passage, uh, I personally like the Brahminical path because i think they it 's a bit it 's a bit uh, as usual a bit male dominated but it is it is the way that you can see how uh, the relationship, uh, relationship between two people, can uh, lead to um, ultimate renunciation, and then finally, a, a true a true love, and then finally, the renunciation. So the idea is that the um, uh, you're a student until you're 25 thereabouts, then you get married and you live the lay life. You live uh, an involved life, yeah, and if possible, you have a family. That's not necessary in this particular, in the spiritual sense. And during that time, uh, you go through—you know—a uh, relationship and go through these these particular moments where uh, there's a, a block to be, uh, there's a, a contradiction to be solved, a conflict to be solved. And in so doing, the relationship gets gets closer and closer until there's what you might call a real union. And then, uh, around about the age of 65 or thereabouts, uh, they're supposed to leave family. They're supposed to go away and live like hermits and then at the age of 75 um, the man and presumably the woman <laughs> the woman the man disappears completely he goes away tries to lose his his um, his his uh, caste name he's supposed to become a beggar he's not you're not supposed to approach him as an uncle or a father or anybody you see and when you think about that isn't that isn't that so isn't that just the natural way of life you know i mean here you've got the leaves you know And you can see it, you know, the the early buds, the full blossom, the slow dying, and then the disappearance. And so here you have uh, the idea of a a full life, if possible, yeah? You've got to have a bit of luck there, where through uh, meeting somebody, you form this very close, uh, intimate relationship, which is very supportive, yeah? And we all know how difficult it is to get that. And then, and then you, you work through that till it becomes utterly mature. Then there comes a time when you realize that even that has to be let go of. So remember, the spiritual path, whether we like it or not, eventually, at some point, is a path of renunciation. Right? You know, it's like um, uh, whether you like it or not, it, it, it's got to come that way. Um, I was just... Uh, I heard Joseph Campbell, and some of you might know... Um, the um, mythologist who wrote those books called uh, Something of the Gods, and a very well-known writer. And uh, he was was interviewed on this, and he he was talking about two relationships that uh, people uh, sometimes go through, the first one being the worldly relationship, and then a change in midlife, and then you finally find your spiritual partner, and off you go. And he reckoned that this was sort of a regular thing. So, there is, there is within uh, a relationship, uh, you know, a real possibility of true spiritual friendship, true spiritual growth, and eventual um, the eventual path of renunciation, which has to come at the end, you see. Um, and, on, and, you know, like, talking about this, it's very interesting how people get a very negative view about uh, marriage and things like that. Um, I'm surprised how many Buddhists think that, for instance, it's not worth having children and bring them into this life of suffering. And um, once a young man came to see me while, <clears throat> while I was in London, and he said that um, you know, he was having problems with his relationship, which had been absolutely fine, but now she wanted kids, and uh, you know, he, he said he couldn't see the point because life is suffering, and, and he gave me all this stuff about suffering and pain. I said, well, you know, why bring a child into this, you see? So I, uh, I slowly uh, argued that, you know, this was a very special place. That in fact it was right here that all the conditions are where a being can actually make very good, very quick spiritual progress, you see. Having, you know, so I explained this to him, you see. And then I said, apart from becoming an arahat, apart from becoming, an Arahant, apart from becoming a, 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 perhaps an anagami, a non-returner, I can't see in the world anything more compassionate than to bring another being into this world and to give it that basic, you know, moral and spiritual teaching for its own growth. So he thanked me very much, and I never saw him again. (laughs) Which goes to show that he just didn't want kids. So... um, I think we have to you know, correct some of that because uh, Buddhism has come to the West through the eyes of Christianity and it's still there as a, as a, as a life-negative religion, as a life-negating religion. And that's just not true. It's just not true. Um, and then fi- uh, just finally within this sort of area is, of course, celibacy. And I'd like to coin uh, a phrase from dear old Sir Winston Churchill, some are born celibate. Some choose to be celibate. And some have celibacy thrust upon them. <laughs> and uh, we have to say that in the ordinary run of life, we do find ourselves in celibate situations. Now, uh, for us, as, um, you know, on the spiritual path, those are times to get in contact with all the stuff around uh, relationships around this sort of relationship um, and it's an oppo- yes and that's an opportunity remember in daily life here, here you see uh, there's no point in getting into all these fantasies because it, it's really just taking our energy somewhere else but in daily life when we enter into daily life and these energies come up then and you can see there's no there's no point in, in, uh, in uh, indulging them you see then this idea of sublimation you know of recognizing that energy and then cajoling it as it were to into some other area of activity hmm? if one of course makes the decision that one wants a relationship then then you know have the faith go with it hope for the best just one last thing that i had uh, slightly had forgotten to mention is that uh, i was very surprised once i did a talk at a, at a marriage ceremony. Well, two things, actually. A talk at a marriage ceremony, uh, not, not for Buddhist. I was just a friend of, the, of this. Well, he was a Buddhist. Yeah, that's right. And everybody else wasn't. And uh, I gave a talk. And in the talk, I simply mentioned the distinction between romantic feelings and real love. And uh, I said that, um, r- you know, romantic feelings towards your partner just come and go. Sometimes you feel them and sometimes you don't. Often you feel hate, disgust, uh, fed up, could get rid of the person, all that sort of stuff. And I said, but love, love is nothing to do with the emotional life. I said, love is to do with a commitment coming from a deeper centre that you have devoted your life to uh, having, uh, you know, to share, to, uh, devoted uh, to sharing your life with somebody else. And that, that is the underlying motivation. And if that if that goes, then yeah, definitely get a divorce. <laughs> So I was surprised how many people came up to me afterwards, and uh, thanked me for that distinction. And and I could only presume that in their own relationships they'd been utterly confused because they woke up in the morning, and think, well, I don't love you know you. You sort of turn over and you see this person, you think, oh god, ten years, you know, like, what am I doing? <laughs> and, you go, oh, god. and and you think oh, I can't I've got to get out, I've got to find somebody else. <laughs> and it's just that confusion about things, you know. And the other thing that I might say just on this little level is how, how uh, I, I've conducted marriage ceremonies for people who've been in partnership for years. I mean, you know, 10, 15, 15 years, one of them. And uh, uh, all of them, and, and they tell me of friends who actually go through a marriage ceremony, that there is a distinctive difference once it moves into a, a state of vowing. Because... When we make a public statement about our intentions that, that really roots us very deeply in something yeah? and uh, that 's why uh, you know uh, we take public oaths that 's why, say when the president is elected, he makes, he makes a public oath, and that, 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 that is a public commitment, and the whole of society is meant to support, to be supported to be support, support, support you with that that 's the height the idea of it, but that extra commitment uh, just, just, as it were, deepened the whole um, the whole relationship. Which means that in the partnership, there was always something holding back. Just something holding back. You know, just in case, uh, you know, after 10, 15 years, this is the wrong person to be with. You know, which would be very disappointing. Okay? After 15 years, you suddenly decide, <laughs> this is not the person I ought to have been with. So, uh, uh, just remembering all that, remembering that here... In our meditation, uh, to be very quick with those thoughts, because they are they 're delicious time moves on uh, yes, celibacy um, so the idea of uh, when we find ourselves in a celibate situation <clears throat> is that um, this is a this is a time to allow those things to pass away, and again this sublimation so that we can see that times of celibacy and uh, for monastics the idea is to uh, refine that energy to take it away from there and to, and to actually refine it you see that's the idea of that and it's displaced into the spiritual path um, I think I've just got a bit of time I think to talk about attachment so, this is, this is also a love with a little kink in it. And just think of all, of all the people whom we, we are attached to. You know, children, uh, family, friends, even animals, yeah? You know, I mean, you can love an animal as much as you can love a human being. Huh? And, uh, and there's an, an attachment to it, you know? And... Um, the unfortunate thing is that we don't know the depth of the attachment until the beloved disappears. You don't know how attached you are to your cat until it dies. You, know, you don't know how attached you are to your mother until she dies. I can tell you that. <laughs> and it's just one of those things that we don't, we don't really know. Now, the only distinction I like to make is that we're not here talking about something evil. Huh? We're not talking about something evil. We're talking something about something unskillful. When the Buddha uses the word akusala, see there's two words in the Pali, papa, which means evil, and akusala, which just simply means unskillful, unwholesome, uh, not virtuous. And in terms of the path, we're just trying to shift all our conditionings towards the virtuous. So it's it's not a case of feeling guilty about attachment. It's a case of knowing that there is some attachment there. That there has to be some attachment there. And uh, say within parents, you see, uh, that's, that's the rebellious teenager. They just want to get away from that grip, that hold. <laughs> um, and of course, the, uh, the, root, the root reason for that is that we're seeking happiness in human beings. Now that's ridiculous. Have anything in the world to depend upon for happiness... <laughs> it's definitely not a human being <laughs> I mean uh, absolutely awful I mean they leave you they, 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 because they hate you and then they, they, they die on you for heaven's sake I mean there's, there's no way that you know when you think about it you'd want your happiness to be dependent on a human being I mean rather a rock you know, that, that, that'll stay there for a while I mean you know I should outlive you you know you can keep <laughs> keep hugging the rock or a tree love a tree that's much better but a, a human being is very, very fickle. So, <laughs> so once, we, once we see that, you see, and we take the attachment away, and then, and then the confusion disappears between what attachment is and what love is, you see. And just, just to be aware of that. And of course, the downside of attachment is that the person becomes an object. They become something uh, uh, to satisfy your lack. And that's what an attachment does. You know, I want you to be like this. I want you to grow up like this, you know, as they get angry. Um, and uh, you can see in certain behaviours, for instance, supposing, uh, you, you know, you were, <clears throat> you were told or somebody was told that, uh, that the doctor said to them that they had terminal cancer. And uh, when the doctor sort of told them that, uh, they begin to break down and weep and cry, gnash their teeth, bang the table. How terrible it is, and all that. You think, well, that's very unprofessional. I don't expect a doctor to uh, to do that, is it? And uh, you expect them to be compassionate, kind, softly spoken, but uh, you know, just uh, as we say, uh, with you in that in that in that quiet way. And when you go home and you, and you say to your partner, "I've got terminal cancer," and they reply, "Well, what do you want to wear in the coffin?" You see, and you think, my goodness, don't you love me? You see, I expect you to weep, gnashing of teeth, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And so you can see how behaviours change uh, when that attachment comes. Huh? And it's a case of <laughs> just recognising that. With children, you see, you can see parents. If the child hurts itself, uh, uh, you know, and it's just a scratch, and, and the parent knows it's just just a little thing, you see. And, but the kid's screaming, you see. Ah, oh, the parent's very calm, very quiet hugs the child, everything's all right, all that sort of stuff. But if the parent sees that the child has actually broken a leg or really banged its head and, oh, my goodness, then the fear comes out and all that. And, of course, that, that feeds right into the child and the child becomes the object of fear. The poor kid's trying to handle all this pain and, and the mother or father's berserkness, see? So, but it's, it's just part and parcel of that relationship, you see? So, um, if we find ourselves here in the meditation, you see, wanting to phone somebody, expecting somebody to phone us, wanting to get in touch with some family member, some friend, you see. you see that, that's, that's a product of attachment. Just let it pass, let it pass. And then there might be that feeling of guilt, of, of some sort of loss of love, you see. Because there's that confusion between what love is and what that what that attachment is
0: hmm?
1: I've got time just for one more thing I wanted to, talk oh yeah um, and just to take the deliciousness to that other area of distraction, so be careful especially on a retreat you see we might think to ourselves oh it would be nice to go for a walk now I think I feel I need a walk but actually if you sit with that actually you just fed up with being inside you're just trying to escape being inside, or you, 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 you don't want to walk up and down the same uh, walking path anymore. You want to have a distraction, do it somewhere else. <laughs> and if you can, if you can really let that go, and as it were, draw the um, uh, draw the space around you closer, making your boundary less and less, you'll see it has a great force on your meditation and your stillness. You see, because every time you wander off on a walk you're in a different place, you're exciting something, something's arising, and it's very difficult. I'm sure you've all experienced, so we say, even doing a quick walking as an exercise, how suddenly the mind will start wandering. And you've walked up and down for ten minutes, and you've been, you've been everywhere and anywhere. So, uh, all these desires for distraction, you see. So remember that the, uh, you know, if we want to really, if we really want to, Uh, get to know the mind and to really get into its uh, turbulences and all these uh, if we we really want to squeeze the pimple as it were then you've got to as it were stop the input that's the point you see you've got to stop the input you've got to stop looking stop listening right hearing is different from listening
0: hmm?
1: right and as soon as you stop the input then there's no way these uh, turbulences can find a way to express themselves see and the mind starts going berserk but you keep playing with it and it's, when, when that's cut off what can they do all these, these all these griefs guilt fear the whole gamut of human suffering see, it booms out as it comes out it comes out of these awful awful terrible feelings but that's the purification that's purgatory hmm? just hang on in there and just keep saying to yourself there is an end to suffering there is gotta be so that's why in uh, in meditation we're always encouraged to you know go inward to stay to stay with what's happening within ourselves and uh, just as an addenda to all that of course is the problem of boredom so remember boredom is the is that frustration is that getting fed up with distraction and pleasure so be very careful with boredom because boredom will tell you to seek distraction to do something else hmm? Uh, remember that the, the whole point of the pleasure dr- the pleasure uh, syndrome is that there's an inbuilt obsolescence you can't you can't keep chewing the same sweet it gets boring you've got to go for the raspberry flavour or the coffee flavour you've got to move a little bit to get that same uh, sense of uh, pleasure or, or joy out of it so whenever boredom comes up you see, you, you feel the boredom you don't get confused by it boredom on the breath boredom on this boredom on that boredom with food as that, brought you stay with the boredom, you see, and the the way to overcome boredom is to keep doing what you're doing, the repetition, just repetition, and keeping in mind, keeping that boredom, as it were, within your attentiveness, and then don't be surprised if the boredom suddenly disappears, and what arises is its opposite, which is interest. Hmm? Only this time, because you've let the boredom go, some some wrong some wrong. Uh, Uh, some wrong um, purpose has been got rid of that's the point boredom has come because we're seeking happiness in whatever it is we're experiencing I mean our society is, uh, is is really bad with that because pleasure is so easy at hand and we expect to be distracted we expect to be entertained all the time TV, radio the whole the whole thing and to enter into a into a place where there's nothing then you know, you get this, you get this uh, boredom arise. And going back to the Buddha's own experience, remember, after he had become enlightened for seven years, Mara stalked him with his three daughters, uh, sexual desire, pleasure, and boredom. See? So there's a little voice saying, this is really boring just sitting here. Why don't you get on with it? <laughs> so with that in mind... Um, be careful of these delicious areas. So I think there's just some time to complete um, some of these questions. Now, unfortunately, I lost the list, or I brought the, the wrong list that I was working with last week, but uh, I shall answer a few more next week. But let, let me just uh, give some indications to these. Um, Uh, Can you please discuss the differences in practices and goals in the Theravada, Zen, Dzogchen and Vajrayana tradition? Well, um, the way that I think you'll find eventually people who have practiced, so we say even two, three or four of these, is that the only difference is skillful means, that's all. We're just using always skillful means, some different ways in order to achieve the same end. What is that end, you see? It's sati, it's right awareness, and panya, insight. And that's all it is. And either uh, you get it by observing the phenomena of the mind, in other words, as, uh, which is a more Telavada based, or you turn, you, or as it were, you become aware more of the space within which this is happening, which is that consciousness. And just that begins to separate consciousness out from the contents that it sees within itself. So it doesn't matter, even in, even in Theravada one becomes aware of the knowing as a different faculty from everything it knows. Hmm? So and remember that all these traditions arose as they passed through cultures and even in our culture now you can see the effect of uh, <clears throat> Western psychotherapy on the practice of Vipassana. And it's bound to happen and it's a good thing because that's, that's the way we are. Um, please discuss the pros and cons of being in the breath at the nostrils as opposed to the abdomen. Um, the uh, The general or the usual instruction is: you watch the breath where you feel it most. I and mean, that's the, that's the the important thing because it's it's your primary object. It's something you want to go back to. It's something that uh, you want to uh, develop a certain stillness with. Right? You notice I don't use the word concentration. And it's something which, when everything quietens down, the still mind, uh, the uh, the peaceful heart, and the quiet body or the quiet mind, still body, uh, there is only the breath, and that becomes uh, the object which you're looking at. So, uh, keeping that in mind, that the primary object is is supposed to be the breath, which uh, and at the point where you feel it most, I think um, I think you you generally agree with me, those of you who've tried both, is that. When you watch the breath of the nostrils, you, you tend to lose the body. It, it, it's a very good technique for concentration meditations because you don't have to worry about the body, you become concentrated up here. So, whereas when you stay down at the, at the abdomen, you're, as it were, buried in the body. and you, I, you tend to feel more in contact with the body. The other thing is that in the Mahasi tradition, of course, um, the rising and falling of the abdomen is then carried into the rising and falling of the footstep so that this constant awareness of transience arising and falling beginning, ending, beginning, ending radical ending, full stop something arising and so uh, if we use the abdomen and the rising or falling of the footstep there is just that constant pointing of the attention at the quality of anicca Of course, it still works at the nostrils, because the breath is coming in, stopping, going out. But it's not so obvious as this rising and falling of the abdomen and the rising and falling of the footstep. Um, But in the end, it's really up to a person and and where they feel also most comfortable. The Mahasi himself was not uh, not strict. He started off with touch points, and he he just ended up with the belly, and that became uh, the focus of most teachings. It was only, I think, later teachers who insisted on uh, watching the abdomen. Uh, Very good. So I hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering, even by the weekend.
0: goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana. In every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom. Austerity and vigour May the forces of delusion not take hold Nor weaken my resolve The Buddha is my excellent refuge Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and illusion be dispelled.